0: Hello, and welcome to None of the Above. My name is Steve Nemirovsky, and I'm your host. On None of the Above, we uh, examine why the American political system is so polarized and dysfunctional. And in every show, we try and talk about solutions to be less functional and less um, polarized. I shouldn't say less functional, less dysfunctional. Today we are in my wheelhouse. For those of you that have watched the show before, you know that my answer to all things dysfunctional and all things polarization are the fact that we need an effective, competitive third party. Not just any third party, but an effective, competitive third party. And there's new, a new book that I found and read, and, and I love that We're interviewing today Professor uh, Bernard Thomas, and his book is entitled The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties. The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties. It's a very interesting book. Uh, We're going to actually do this in two segments. Uh, In one book, we're going to be, in one segment, we'll be a little more analytical, uh, a little more professor-student-ish on this show. I'm going to talk about some of the theoretical approaches that Dr. Thomas takes to explaining uh, the demise and rebirth of American third parties. And then we're going to do an entirely different show where we're going to talk about how this can work. Uh, Again, my theory, we need a third party. And Dr. Thomas is going to tell us why we can actually see a path to a third party, why there's some light at the end of the tunnel. So we're going to welcome Professor uh, Bernard Thomas, and we're going to talk about third parties. Professor, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, Thank you so much for having me.
0: I just broke the rule. I said, do you want to be Professor or uh, Bernard? And I called you Professor.
1: You can call me either one. I'm, I'm comfortable either way.
0: Now, when I teach, I don't want my students to call me by the first name. I always say Professor, but we, 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 we kind of split the baby by making it a Professor Nemo. So.
1: Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. No, I think with students, yeah, professor is better. But otherwise, then they it, it can go either way and it's fine.
0: Right. And you're an assistant professor at Valdosta State University in Georgia, where you, teach That's poli- right. where you teach political science.
1: I teach political science. I teach American government and political parties and elections and, and those type of things.
0: Great. I should come down and take your class after reading your book. I know I can learn a lot.
1: It'll be great having you.
0: Or I can. I always guess lecture too. What's the best time of the year to come down to Southern Georgia, Georgia, to visit?
1: Oh, all times are good here. It's it's always warm. It's yeah. uh, it's generally nice. A little bit rainy this year, but in general, very nice. So, so you're welcome anytime. We right, happily maybe, have you.
0: Right, maybe November. I'm thinking. We'll talk. We'll talk. All right, so you've written this great book, uh, The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties. And I guess the, the first question is, uh, why write the book? What, what, what's, what, what got you excited about this topic?
1: Well, it was a, it was a process that started over time. I had uh, written a book on the, the parties that emerged in uh, Eastern Europe after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union. And so I was interested in new parties, but I had a lot of background in American politics. And so at one point I simply decided that what I would do is trace the impact on ballot access laws. So I'm sure you talked about this a lot, but the whole, the laws that determine how candidates get onto the ballot. And there's that general argument that the laws are so difficult in the United States that, that third parties can't possibly get on. So when I was doing the research, my assumption was, well, that, that has to be right, because it's written everywhere. And so a graduate student and I went into the archives and started tracing uh, these laws since the 1890s. So to the best of my knowledge, we were the first to do that, to actually go through the entire process of of looking at how these laws changed over the last 100 plus years. And then I looked at it in terms of how it affected elections and, uh, and U.S. House elections specifically. And then to my complete surprise, there was we found no relationship. We found no relationship between how hard the ballot access laws were and whether or not third parties got onto the ballot. Now as I did the research better, as we delved into it more, what it turned out is, well, there is a little bit of an impact. So there's some impact, but it's nothing like what you would have expected. So this was one of those moments. Uh, which people like me love, which is where you're kind of surprised. And so I, I dug in more, I found actually a couple of other people, not with the same amount of data, but a few other researchers found similar results. And so that just started getting my uh, curiosity going. And so as I was uh, became more and more curious and started digging in deeper and deeper, I started realizing that, or at least I started coming to the conclusion that almost everything that I had thought that I knew about uh, third parties was wrong, that, in fact, uh, not only aren't these things what have held them down, not only are these established theories mostly not right or at least overstated, but that they've actually been gaining strength gradually over the last uh, 50 years, so, so kind of, so kind of. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So,
0: so kind of like fake news. <laughs> kind of. Except I
1: think this is this is where academics get in trouble because sometimes what happens is is we uh, we do some research, we come up with some theories, they become established, and then we almost stop thinking about them because well that's old news. So I guess it's more like an old news than a fake news, and so it seems a lot of people didn't weren't paying attention and i wasn't paying attention either until i tripped over this so, so you... it isn't so much i didn't start off as a, i've always thought a multi-party democracy was much better but like most political scientists i thought well this is a pipe dream so why bother discussing it you know here's all this established work that shows that that third parties are nowhere And then I gradually realized, well, no, in fact, uh, the established work isn't nearly as sound as I thought it was. So this is, it was a slow process that got me finally to the point of, of putting it into a full argument that basically contradicts most of what is written out there about third
0: parties. So you mentioned you're a political scientist, but you're obviously a bit of a historian. So let's paint the picture for the book here. You've gone back historically, and what you found is, at least for the start of the conversation, that there was a time when we had a very robust third-party picture in our country. Then there was a time when that dropped off, and now you're finding that it's coming back again. So that's that's the historical context, correct?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, to to, to go into slightly more detail, it's, so I started looking after the Civil War. And if you look at the decades after the Civil War for about, let's say, 50 years, what you would have is these periods where, yeah, the Democrats and the Republicans were mostly in charge, and then suddenly there would be this burst of third-party activity. So it wasn't a constant. They would just suddenly emerge, uh, at least in terms of looking at the numbers, seemingly out of nowhere, and smash into the system and win some seats, not a lot usually. They were usually too spread out in support. But they'd win some seats, but mostly they would shake up the political system. Then the, the it looks like what happened was the major parties would react, they'd make some reforms, they, they, they'd steal their issues. Those thirties, Those third parties would disappear, but they've already did some amount of impact. So this goes up until around 1912 let's say 1914, 1916, starting around 1920, so a little earlier than we used to think, Uh, well, a little earlier, a little later, depending on who you're talking to, but nonetheless, let's say around 1920, then there becomes this drop-off. And third parties do, in fact, virtually completely disappear in the United States. So then suddenly you have some last holdouts in states like Minnesota and Wisconsin. But even there, eventually the third parties give in and the two major parties take over. So you have this period, uh, starting in the 1920s, but it really kicks in by the middle half of the 1940s. Where third parties are virtually non-existent in the United States, outside of maybe New York State, so there is, there is very very little activity. Then in 1968, and as many of your viewers might know, 1968 is one of those critical years in American politics, even world politics, where suddenly you have a lot of protests. Suddenly you have a very you know the anti-war movement, this the late part of the civil rights movement. And at that point we start seeing a jump again of third party activity and and third parties um, winning votes. And as that goes, it starts rising gradually. Well, it's a few spikes, but it's rising. And if you look at it, it's, it's, if you're looking at it as a chart, it's as if we're going back into the opposite direction and we're at approximately 1920. So you don't have these giant waves right now. You don't have the great busts of the political system, but what you seem to have is a lot of people who are supporting third parties and third parties actually being much more active than they used to be. So I think that we could say we're in a third phase, but it's almost like we're moving into a new party period. And so I'm actually predicting that a little ahead of the, the ball, but that's what I see the evidence showing.
0: Well, I'm, I'm predicting it too, as I mentioned, and uh, maybe if you and I predict enough together, we'll get there. But So that's the historical framework. So you had this that's context, it. and then you said, well, you've read all these articles, as you said, treatises, whatever you want to call them, of people who explain why third parties can't exist in the United States, and you measure it against this historical context to prove that some of these theories just aren't going to hold water, correct?
1: Right. It's either the the theories are are I would say either incorrect or or overstated. Often it's you know I had I worked with a lot of data, so it was it wasn't just looking at an election or two. We pulled together uh, tens of thousands of elections, so we get a really good sense of of where things are moving. And so so you can see looking at that way, you know that that some of these things would have some of an impact, but they're not major. They're not as big as one would expect. And, you know, a small impact is effectively no impact. If, you, if you're having trouble measuring it, that's not a good sign. And if it takes that much data and some real statistical techniques to pull it out. So, so yeah, so, I mean, I guess if you want, we can talk about some of these specifics, uh, but that's the general thing. And another way to look at it is, Those theories that we consider the established theories on third parties have been around since at least the 1940s, probably even earlier. So these are things that people came up with at the time, and they just kind of stuck. So it's almost like the people took a look at what was going on right in the middle of the time when third parties were the weakest, and then they stopped looking. And so there was no sense of of, uh, there was no change really in the theoretical frameworks, you know, and on top of that, there was no measurement of how things were changing in American politics, at least related to third parties.
0: No, and as I said, in this show, I want to focus on some of these theories of why people said you can't have an effective third party, because that's what people use as part of their argument, you know, against what you're writing and I'm writing. So I want to explore that. And as I said, in the next show, we'll talk about some of these about why we can get there. So. One of the primary um, concepts, and I'm probably going to pronounce this gentleman's name wrong, was it Duverger? Duverger. Du- Duverger. He's a French guy. Okay. Duverger's yeah. Law. Now, we could probably do two shows on Duverger's Law, but maybe we'll condense it down to three or four minutes here. What was Duverger's Law, quickly, and then, or as quickly as you can, and then let's talk about why it, it, it didn't apply here.
1: Okay. Duverger's Law, the, the, the funny thing about Duverger's Law is it probably wasn't invented by Duverger. But, but he was the guy who became famous for it when he wrote about it in around 1950. And Duverger's law says that if you have single-member plurality electoral systems, those will favor uh, a two-party system. So to put that into English, if you have elections like they are run in the United States, so you have single-member districts, and whoever gets the most votes wins, he argued that that would lead to strongly um, support uh, there being just two large parties. And he gave a few reasons why, but one of them is the idea that people don't want to spoil their vote. So in other words, it's one of those, well, I could vote for the Greens or I could vote for the Democratic candidate. I love the Greens. I don't really like the Democrats, but I don't want to give the election to the Republicans, so I'm going to vote for the, the, the Democrat. And then this means that the Greens go nowhere. So that's basically Duverger's law. There's a little bit more to it, but that's the gist of it.
0: Okay, so you've gone back now and you've looked at history and found that that is not an adequate or sufficient explanation for the third-party phenomenon.
1: Right. I would say it's overstated. I mean, there is, there is, uh, it it does matter how you run elections, right? If you suddenly turn the United States into a big proportional representation system, third parties would likely win easily. I mean, I I don't think there's any doubt about that. But the problem is, there's a couple of ways of looking at the problem, but here's the most, I think, probably the most important way. The way that this conclusion was reached primarily was looking at the uh, systems that ran uh, elections this way, and the two big examples were United States and uh, the United Kingdom. And at the time, in the United Kingdom, it was the conservatives and labor, and that's it. In America, it was Democrats and Republicans, that's it. And so the assumption was, and he even went as far as saying, oh yeah, they have this, this uh, liberal party, and they made a few votes this year, but that's going to end soon. Well, that is exactly what didn't happen, is that what happened is that in the United Kingdom, over time, third parties started emerging and becoming stronger and stronger. The other thing that happened was they were looking at this information. There's only a handful of bigger countries to look at. And they were looking at Canada and, and India. And so here you have your four cases. You have the United States, and you have the United Kingdom, where it-. Both of them have two giant parties and no third party, So I'm still talking about the 1950s. Then you have India, where you have one giant party at the time, Congress, and a bunch of smaller parties. And you have Canada, where you have some decently strong third parties. So what the people who were doing research at the time started doing was thinking, well, it must be because, well, India doesn't count, and Canada's just a little bit weird. So you have four cases, and only two of them work, really. Well, over time, it became only one case works for this theory, if you think that it's going to be a two-party system because of the way we run elections, and that's the United States. And the evidence, looking at other countries, and especially if you loop in a few others, is that people actually do vote against the two biggest parties, even if you have single-member district systems. They're still going to. You know, so, so the answer on this with Duverger's law is, yeah, if you had proportional representation, you would have more political parties. I think that's established. But you can't make the argument that third parties are so weak in America because of the way we run elections, because in India, Canada, and the UK, they run elections exactly the same way, at least in terms of the basic structure. And third parties are much, much stronger.
0: I was wondering, you don't talk about this much in the book, but the other nations, for instance, India, Canada, UK, etc., do they handle redistricting the same way we do, or do they have a different approach to that?
1: Well, I think they have a little bit of a different approach to that. I, I think it's becoming a, a serious issue for us. Canada does something strange where uh, they, the, the districts aren't always the same uh size in terms of population you know what for us within a state every single district is the same but but those kinds of issues are not nearly as serious there having said that in in at least in Canada and the UK they they there's a lot of people who actually want to get rid of the the single member district systems because because it, it this there are all kinds of problems with that system and one of them is it opens the door for gerrymandering Right. Or you could have a situation where, where you have negative effects from it, even if politicians aren't manipulating it. So to be, to be clear, I am not a fan of, of single-member district systems at all. I just think that the, the theory saying that this is the reason why we have two parties in America and it'll never change ever, ever, ever really is not consistent with the evidence.
0: So let's say we get through a couple of these other theories. Another one of the theories I think is very prevalent is that the primary system right. is, it works against third parties.
1: Right. The the running theory on this, and again, these are these are theories that if you hear them, they they make sense. So they're not they're not things where you you hear these theories and say, well, that doesn't that's that's ridiculous. The the theories actually are something that could work, and the idea is that okay, so the primaries. The argument with the primaries is that what happened was that because of the progressive movement in the around uh, starting around let's say 1900 and really kicking in by around 1910 1912, the uh, what happened was that the major parties had to start running uh, nominating their candidates by primary. So in other words, if you go back a century, it used to be party bosses decided who was going to be be running. And instead now they have to run elections to determine who is going to run in the election, so what we have today. Now, the argument is that third parties started getting hurt by this because there started being no reason to run a third party, right? If you could, like the Tea Party, run candidates in the Republican primary, why would you run a third party? This is the argument. Uh, so, so you could see why someone would, would buy this. But the evidence shows, though, is that there's actually no relationship between primaries, having primaries, and how strong third parties are. They're actually two somewhat different phenomena. So it's not like a group of people decided, well, we want a third party, or I'd vote for a third party, but you know what, I'll vote in the primaries instead. So, instead, it seems—see, there, there really is, is one big problem if you're an opposition group and you're, you decide to run in the Democratic or Republican primary. And that is that it's really hard to advertise yourself in this situation. If you're running as a libertarian, it says libertarian next to your name on the ballot, right? People who are unhappy with the major system can go and say, okay, I'm going to vote Libertarian now. But if you're a Libertarian and you run in the Republican primary, you probably should figure out some way of raising a lot of money, because nobody is going to know who you are unless you do advertisement at the level of the major party candidates. So it seems like, you know, right now we're having a lot of uh, excitement in terms of, of Democratic candidates winning, these uh, Democratic socialists winning Democratic primaries. Uh, But it looks to me like that's something that can work in isolated pockets, but would be very hard to do in kind of a national scale unless you happen to be the Tea Party and are getting millions of dollars of financing from rich donors.
0: I've I've actually argued, though, and and I I don't know if this is consistent with what you're saying, I've argued that the Tea Party's biggest mistake was that they didn't start a party because I think if there ever was a time when a group had the momentum to really break out and have a party, it was that. And I've argued that the progressives in the Democratic Party right now should be doing the same thing. I don't argue it from the electoral sense that you're saying. What I'm arguing is that if you run within the party structure, even when you win seats like the Tea Party did, you still become subject to the party structure, and you're really not at the table when people are making decisions. And I, I, so. I think that's
1: actually right. I mean, the, the Tea Party was completely co-opted. Yes. The, the Tea Party did... I mean, it, political scientists are studying this, and it's, it's a neither one or the other. What happened was it, is it it was, in fact, a grassroots movement. And then people within the Republican Party structure were like, wow, we can use this, and they did. And so... Uh, they, you know, and there's no reason why the Tea Party couldn't have actually done both again, but but that was a moment. Now I, the Democratic Socialists are saying the same thing. They're saying there's no such thing as a viable third party, so let's run in the primaries. Well, I don't know, especially in their case, I don't know how far they can get with this strategy, even with some of the successes they've had right now. And it's entirely exactly the for the reasons that you put. Yes, I'm giving an argument in one way, but what you're saying is also true.
0: So, so another thing that you disabuse uh, uh, people of here is the notion that the ballot access laws, as constricting as they are, really don't block third parties.
1: Yeah, and this is one that actually, uh, some of these, there's been new people doing, uh, people doing newer research over the last decade or so, so, so there's been a number of other people who've come kind of to the same conclusion. They don't go take it as far, they don't use as much data as I do, but, but there's some consistency here. But, but there's been several of us that when we first did the research, uh, looked at ballot access laws and openly said, well, I'm really surprised to say that they don't seem to matter that much. They, uh, they don't seem to have an impact. Okay, so, so I, I, I'm guessing uh, your viewers probably know this well, but just to give make sure that anyone listening knows what we're talking about. Uh, ballot access laws, to get on the ballot. So uh, the way that it worked, it used to be in American politics. There were no ballots. There were no secret ballots. There was nothing secret. You wanted to vote, you would show up to the voting place, you'd walk up to whatever political party you like, they'd hand you a ballot, and you'd throw it into a box. Everyone could see you do it. It was a great opportunity for both intimidation and for stuffing the ballots. So to stop that, we went with uh, the secret ballot, where it is like today, where we go in and we do it privately and nobody knows how we vote. But to have that system, somebody has to decide who the candidates are going to be. There has to be some way of limiting it. So the, the, each state government has an interest in, in creating some sort of a, you know, you've got to get 25, 100, 1,000 signatures, something like that.
0: And you've, uh, well, I'm, I'm you sorry, go ahead. and, and you, you, you talk about that in the book. We, you mentioned our good friend from the show, Richard Winger. We've actually had Richard on the show quite mm-hmm. a bit, and he, he delves in these ballot access laws and uh, how he fights them. But, but again, your research is showing that the, the ballot access laws themselves are not a singular reason for preventing third parties from being successful.
1: They're not, they're not a key issue, no. I can imma- what I can imagine is that they're, they're arduous and difficult because those laws, once the states enacted them, a lot of these states decided, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. Why are we, why are we making it 1%? Let's make it 10% of the vote that, that people have to get. Let's make them do all kinds of hoops. And so, you know, Richard Winger is known for doing some, some important work in terms of helping all the different third parties, especially the Libertarians, uh, get through this process. Right. But it doesn't seem to be stopping parties from, from getting on the ballot, and it doesn't seem to be affecting the amount of votes that they get, or at least the effect on the vote is so small it's hard to measure. And so, ironically, if anything, gathering signatures increases the vote for third-party candidates. It doesn't hurt; it actually helps.
0: Yeah, I've that always argued
1: much, but yeah, it helps. I'm sorry. I
0: know. I've always argued that it actually helps you if they force you to do work and get your name out and and get petitions signed. It gives you more access to the people, and it helps you. So, it actually b- helps you. Yeah, so that Bernard, you exactly uh, right believe it or not. We're getting to the end of the first show already, so time we're already flies. Already at you're... the end. Yes. Wow,
1: that's, that went so fast. I should talk faster. So, our,
0: um, so, f- so well. for our viewers, we're we're interviewing uh, Professor uh, Bernard Thomas. He's written a great book called "The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties." Uh, quickly, because we're going to break and do another show with you. Tell my viewers how to find your book.
1: Okay. Well, you can find it on on Amazon. Uh, you can also find the the, the uh, reviews there on it and you can also find it at the the rutledge uh website it is it's there's a lot of different places but amazon is certainly one of the easiest to get it from
0: all right so bernard we're going to break here Uh, we're going to close and come back to you in a few minutes we'll start round two fair enough fair enough so uh we've been watching an interview we've been conducting an interview with here professor thomas from Valdosta state university he's written this great book on third parties and i know we're a little professorial uh in our first conversation here But I I think we had to do it. You have to understand the history that Professor Thomas is talking about. And you have to understand why some of the historic reasons, all of which have some validity to them, why they're not what's keeping us from having a third party. And I think you have to understand that because for those of you that want to get involved in third party movements, you've got got to read this book or understand the fact that these are not the roadblocks that you thought they were. They're overcomable, if there's such a word here. So in our show, what we try to do is educate, and we try and have fun. And in this particular show, I think we did a little more educating and perhaps a little less fun. Now we're going to end this show and hopefully make you watch the next segment. We're going to have a lot more fun. We're going to talk about how we can actually get some third parties started in our country. Remember, if you're not part of the solution, you are part of the problem.